Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, again, we thank you that it is living and powerful. And Father, this morning as we just turn to this most incredible book, we just pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, just help us to understand, Lord, not just what took place in Daniel's life and at that time, but Lord, how these things apply to us. Your word tells us, Lord, that all the things that were written aforetime are there for our learning, for our comfort. Lord, so we pray this morning that we would learn from these things, that we would be comforted and encouraged. Lord, just speak to us now, we pray through your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, really, from the beginning of the year, when uh, we kind of made this decision, I really feel the Lord laid on my heart just to take us through the Bible this year. This was one of the weeks I've been looking forward to. In fact, this week and next week, we're going to split the book of Daniel over two weeks. There's just so much here. Uh, It's just such a wonderful book. And I think... It's so difficult, isn't it? Daniel certainly is one of my top three uh, out of all the books in the Bible. It, just, there is so much, and it's such an important book in so many ways, as we'll see as we go through. In the book of Daniel, we've got 12 chapters, but that's 357 verses, 11,606 words, and 16 questions that are asked, 218 verses of history. And we've got 79 verses of fulfilled prophecy, and then a further 60 verses of unfulfilled prophecy. There's seven commands given, and there's four promises uh, that we see as well. And there's six distinct messages from God. That's the kind of the breakdown. That's what we're going to be going through as we look uh, through the book of Daniel. Um, it was recorded by Josephus in 332 BC. He was a, a Jewish historian. Um, that Jejuthun, a Jewish high priest, had actually met Alexander the Great at the gates of Jerusalem. So this is the beginning of Alexander's conquest of the known world. And this priest, Jejuthun, presents Alexander with a copy of the book of Daniel. And he showed him in it the prophecies concerning Alexander the Great. And Alexander was so impressed by this that he spared the city. Not only that, when he got to Babylon, he treated the Jewish captives who were there with great favor and kindness. This is an incredible book. This is a book that has influenced nations and kings. And we'll continue to do so, as we'll see. The subheading for for this study really is preeminence, purpose, purity, and prophecy. Sounds a bit kind of like an Anglican sermon, doesn't it? We get everything starting with the same letter. For many years I was in that kind of system, and very often the sermons have that kind of feel. But all of these things apply so much, and I'll show you why. Preeminence. Well, the book is going to show us that the Lord reigns. We'll unpack that in just a moment a bit more. The purpose is two things. Firstly, that there's a purpose in life. That God had a real purpose for Daniel, but also, as we've just seen the verse that Jared just shared with us, and we'll look at it in a moment again, that Daniel had purposed in his heart. So important. Daniel had made a decision before the choices were even presented to him. Purity, really the same thing. This, this decision was made before the choice was presented that there wasn't going to be any area of compromise in his life. He was so set apart for God. And then prophecy, of course, this book is an incredible book of prophecy. But Job 24 verse 1 asks this question. It says, why do they that know him not see his days? It's amazing that so many people in the church today are ignorant of prophecy. They don't know what's coming. Let's just have a quick look at some of these things in a little bit more detail. Preeminence, first of all. Well, God shows time and time again through this book that it is God who rules in the kingdoms of man. We're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar has this kind of three-step lesson that finally, in fact, it's the same lesson that he's taught three times. Finally, he gets it. But it's the same lesson that we'll see in chapter 2, in chapter 3, and then again we see in chapter 4. It's God who orders the steps of a good man. Psalm 37, 23 tells us that. And indeed, Proverbs 20, verse 24 says, Man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? Just again, man's goings are of the Lord. God is in control. He's the one that is dictating the pace, not just of this world, but in our lives as well. What we've got to learn to do is obey him and follow him. And the basis, of course, of Daniel's life is this confident assurance that whatever happened on the outside, however desperate things seemed to be, God was still on the throne. In regard to the purpose, the first part of this is that the book underlines the fact that God has a purpose for all that happens in our lives. You know, some of us have been through tragedies, through horrible experiences that we really would much rather not have gone through. But we'll see how God uses those things as we look back in our lives. 
Who would have thought that these teenagers who were dragged away in shackles would be the ones to bring the most powerful of nations to its knees? But that's exactly what they did, and we'll see in a moment that. Paul reminds, of course, Romans 8.28. We know that all things, not just some things, but all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. The other part of purpose is simply the fact, as we said a moment ago, that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not define himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And in the context we see that purpose referred to here is this determined, conscious decision that's made in the heart. See, Daniel's treasure was to do the will of God, regardless of what others thought or said. In regards to the purity, again, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not define himself. This young Jewish boy, around about 14 years of age, purposed in his heart that he was not going to be defiled. His name means God is my judge. See, Daniel had decided before the event, and that's really the, the key. You know, sometimes we can mull over things. We can think about all sorts of circumstances or whatever. You know, but it's what we decide before we put in the situation that will determine the outcome. Daniel had decided that he was going to simply obey God. And we see a very simple life that Daniel has in a sense. Not, not the, the confusion that other people may look at and see from the other side. You know, we're going to get to this account in a moment of these Hebrew young men that are put into this fiery furnace you know no doubt the outside atmosphere was one of tension but as Nebuchadnezzar looks in he notices that these three men are there with the son of God and there's a real peace and tranquility there you know other people look from the outside and they may see confusion but as we walk with God as is that purity in our lives there's just a simplicity as God is in control Daniel never gave in we're going to see a great line at the end of the first, verse, first chapter we'll look at in just a moment. But Daniel continued. This wasn't just a, he had a go. and you know, This was the whole of his life was like this. He's such a role model and example for us to follow. And twice in the book of Ezekiel, God points to Daniel as the example of what a righteous man should actually be like. Daniel held loosely to the things of this world, but tightly to God. And then finally, in regard to prophecy... It's one of the undeniable proofs, of course, that God has given to show that his word is true. 2 Peter 1.19 speaks of the more sure word of prophecy. Peter relates that to an actual experience he had, the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, yeah, those things are great, experience is fine, but the Bible is the more sure word. And Jesus pointed to Daniel's prophecy as the key to understanding the end times. Yet, as I said a moment ago, it's astonishing that so many Christians are ignorant regarding the prophecies in the Bible. Again, a verse from Job 24, verse 1, it says, Why, seeing times are not hidden from the Almighty, do they that know him not see his days? It's a real perplexing question. You know, God knows everything. He's outside of time. He's revealed in his word. So why isn't all the church familiar and excited about prophecy, about the things that are yet to come. Well, as we look at the time that Daniel ministered in, uh, we've gone through the first part of the Bible, the whole of a huge amount of history is covered by the book of Genesis. And we've been going through the rest of the Old Testament, through the nation, through Judges, through um, uh, Samuel, through Kings, Chronicles, and so on, and then looking at some of the prophets. And we're now in this section here where the nation are taken away into captivity, the exile. Um, interestingly, the book of Daniel records the collapse of the nation of Israel, as a Jeremiah, Ezekiel prophesied and so on, and the beginning of the times of the Gentiles, a very specific phrase that we find in scripture. And that's a period of time that starts from the point that we're going to look at this morning and will carry on right up until the Messiah will return and reestablish Israel. So the scope of the book of Daniel covers a huge amount of history. In fact, actually it's about the same as the book of Genesis in terms of the time frame. Uh, this times of the Gentiles. In fact, it goes even beyond that. In Acts chapter 15, the council meeting of the church, one of the first major meetings where they meet together to discuss, discuss doctrine and so on. Peter makes this uh, point and James then says, Peter has declared how that God 
at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. And notice verse 16. After this. So after God has taken out the Gentiles for his name. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof and will set it up. Again that's really talking about the times of the Gentiles. So this time now that we're in is the times of the Gentiles where the... God's plan, in a sense, is given over to bringing in a people for his name out of the Gentiles. But when that's complete, God's attention will once again return to the nation of Israel. And all those prophecies that we have in his word will be fulfilled. Looking at the uh, structure of the book, um, the first six chapters are historical. Um, first chapter we see that Daniel's deported as a teenager. The second chapter we have this famous dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. There's chapter 3 again, the fiery furnace, something we're very familiar with, I'm sure, from Sunday school lessons and so on, uh, but well-known portions of scripture. Chapter 4, we have this strange situation with Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Chapter 5, we then get the fall of Babylon, as the Babylon is taken over by the Medes and the Persians. And then finally, chapter 6, of the historical section, we have the lion's den. Now, the first chapter is actually in Hebrew. But as we get on to the Gentile section of the book, the language changes to Aramaic in the original text. It's quite interesting that it changes from the Jewish language when it's talking about the Jews to a Gentile language when it's talking about the Gentiles. And that carries on through chapter 7 as well, which is the second section of the book, if you like, but that's also in Aramaic. But then we return back to the Hebrew once we get back to the Jewish section. So once we get to chapter 7 onwards, we're into the, the visions, if you like, that Daniel receives. And we'll look at this going through next week. And the vision of the four beasts in chapter 7, the ram and the he-goat in chapter 8. This incredible prophecy of the 70 weeks in chapter 9. And then we get this glimpse of the satanic side of things, the, the, the unseen spiritual realm uh, in chapter 10. Chapter 11, what many people refer to as the silent years. That period of time from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. There's about 400 years of history there. And people say, well, that's not covered in the Bible. Well, it is. And when we look next week, you'll see how amazingly it is covered in incredible detail. It's just all told before it happens. And then finally, chapter 12, we have the consummation of all things. as All these things are, are wrapped up. So again, when the focus really returns back to the nation of Israel, the language changes from Aramaic back to Hebrew again, which is just interesting in terms of the construction. But if we were to look at this in chronological order, this might help us, because the first chapter is the first chapter as it would have occurred historically and chronologically in 606 BC. Nebuchadnezzar's dream would have been a few years later, but then it's quite a big jump in time when we go down onto Nebuchadnezzar's image. Some over 20 years pass, really, uh, leading us up to this point where this image is erected on the plain of Jura outside of Babylon itself. Chapter 4 then, following on a little bit later than that, we get this incident with Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Nebuchadnezzar lives just one year after that. Very interesting. Um, and it se- we seem to see in the text that Nebuchadnezzar is converted and finally he comes to recognize God. Well, then we've got the vision of the four beasts, the ram and the he-goat. Those kind of seemingly out of sequence in terms of the chronology. Um, but then back into the history, Babylon falls to the Persians, the lion's den, uh, chapter 6. Then chapter 9, 10, 11, and 12, uh, again, chronolo- chronologically carry on, leading us up to about 536 as the kind of the final point where Daniel writes. Daniel's in ministry into his late 80s, uh, possibly even early 90s. Now, I just need to mention, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning at all, but there's a lot of critics over the years that have attacked Daniel. But this book is totally vindicated by history, um, as I mentioned already. Uh, in 332, Alexander is presented with a copy of this book as he arrives at Jerusalem. And another uh, um, um, archaeologist uh, during the excavations of Nebuchadnezzar's palace um, found the banqueting hall and all these kind of things that we read about in Daniel just as Daniel described them. Daniel had to be an eyewitness. There's so many references to these things. Of course, the ultimate authentication of all of this is that Jesus himself quotes from the book of Daniel. He speaks of Daniel as being a prophet. You don't get any greater accreditation than Jesus vouching for you. 
But as guest said already, that Ezekiel, who was a contemporary with Babylon, speaks of Daniel as a real person and classed him alongside Noah and Job and so on. And interestingly, one of the critics' uh, games they like to play is looking at some of the words. And there's three Greek words that are found in the text. And it became a big thing, saying, well, the Greek empire didn't arise till after this, and so this must be of late origin. Well, the, the Greek words that are mentioned are musical instruments, and they've now found that those musical instruments were indeed in existence in the time of Babylon and Daniel and so on. In fact, even in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, he'd imported Greek uh, architecture and so on in the design and building. Uh, the Persian words they found, they've now found predate even the Babylonian Empire. So every attack of the critics has been thoroughly discredited. Uh, recently, Bill Cooper has released a new book uh, called The Authenticity of the Book of Daniel. It's not a particularly long book, but it just smashes the critics' arguments and just shows that from history, we've got so much to support the, the, um, the basis of this book. Of course, one of the reasons the critics hate it is because it is so accurate in regard to the prophecy. And so many things that the book of Daniel says were going to happen, we can look back and we can see have happened exactly as prophesied. Undeniably the word of God. <clears throat> well, again, the chronology uh, just leading up to this, 612 BC, so 600 years before Jesus comes, Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, that in 722, so over 100 years prior to this, they'd come and taken the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. Well, Nineveh now, remember Jonah, Brentson preached to Nineveh, and their judgment is delayed as a result of that. They repent at that point, the, the preaching of Jonah, but now judgment comes. And an alliance of the Babylonians and the Medes come together against Nineveh. Just to give us some kind of context on the map, this is the, the Middle East as we know it, the area of Israel. Up here we have Nineveh, and down here we have Babylon. The area of the Medes was over this side, and so on. And Karshemesh, this place becomes the new capital of the Assyrian Empire. Because what we have is the Medes and the Babylonians come together and destroy and capture Nineveh. Well, that then leads on um, to... In 609 BC, three years later, Pharaoh, another powerhouse at the time in the, the uh, local economy, um, leads an army against Assyria. So Assyria now have kind of moved camp to Karshemesh that I just showed you. Josiah, the king of Israel at this time, comes out to fight against King Necho, even though Necho doesn't want to fight against Josiah. We looked at that going through Chronicles. So Pharaoh Necho comes up here, stopping off at Jerusalem or Israel. There's actually a battle that takes place in the, the Megiddo Valley. Uh, and then eventually he goes up to this battle at Karshemesh. And uh, he's victorious at that point. And then as he comes back from that battle, um, he then takes Jehoaz, who's been on the throne for just three months, and he takes him back down to Egypt. So as a result of this, Jehoiakim is then put on the throne, another son of Josiah, and he becomes the next king of Israel. Well, that then leads us on to this battle of Karshemesh that I just mentioned. And then Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh then go kind of head to head. Uh, so again, just to show you on the map. So we have Pharaoh coming up here and we have Babylon up here. And this again, this final battle, climactic battle, where Egypt really are uh, just overrun and destroyed. And Babylon now become the empire that is uh, dominating the world at this time. And so back in Jerusalem, it was in the third year of Jehoiakim, which was 606 BC, that Nebuchadnezzar, after this victory up in Karshemesh, comes back down now to Jerusalem, lays siege to Jerusalem, and then finally captures Jerusalem, and Daniel is taken away at this point. Uh, this time, Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, is put on the throne for just three months until he's then taken to Babylon. This is the individual, if you remember, this blood curse is placed upon that we read about in Jeremiah. And so Nebuchadnezzar appoints Zedekiah as the king in Jerusalem to reign for another 11 years. He finally rebels and is taken captive in the final siege. So just to refresh your memory, we have the first siege of Jerusalem in 606 BC. That triggers a period of time, a 70-year period prophesied by Jeremiah, the servitude of the nation. And that's terminated in 537 by the decree of Cyrus. We'll look at that next week in detail. 
In the second siege, 597, that's when Ezekiel is taken away. And about 10,000 of the, 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 the top princes and everyone is left in Jerusalem. And then finally, in 587, the third siege. And this begins a period of time, the desolations of Jerusalem, again spoken of by Jeremiah. Another period of 70 years to the day that terminates in 518 BC with the decree of Darius. And we'll look at that when we get to the book of Haggai. So that's your history. So, Daniel, just a teenager when he's deported to Babylon in 606 BC. And Josephus records that actually Daniel meets Cyrus at the gates of Babylon right at the end of his ministry in 539 BC. And we know that he served under Darius the Mede who reigned in the province of Babylon under Cyrus. Again, that will come out in a short while. So, But we see that Daniel's ministry lasted for at least 70 years. And he was faithful to God the whole time. Just an incredible individual. Well, it stretches as saying to his late ministry in the 80s. And Daniel ends up serving as prime minister under two successive world empires. And that's a feat totally unparalleled in history. I mean, we have maybe different empires, so the same empire and different leaders within it and so on. But this is two totally different empires and Daniel serves in this capacity. But as Daniel recalls at the end of chapter 1, it's God alone who had lifted him up. Daniel doesn't take any credit for this. He says, his is the power, the glory, the might, the dominion. And he alone rules in the kingdoms of men. Now that's the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar is going to struggle so hard to learn. And finally, in the hardest of possible ways, he does learn that lesson. Well, Daniel, just for information's sake, is called the Beloved, interestingly. And it's the same title that's given to John in the New Testament. And both Daniel and John are given these revelations of the climax of world events. And it seems that God then reserves his most intimate secrets for those who are his beloved. And what's interesting about that is the church is also called his beloved. And so these secrets are for us. And again, what a privilege that God has revealed these things to us. You know, sometimes we get quite blasé about scripture and so on. But these are incredible things. The world has no concept of the information that is available to us and that the Lord through his spirit reveals to us through his word. Well, Daniel was destined to rise to prominence in the Babylonian Empire and again in the subsequent Persian Empire. Personally, he received some of the most astonishing prophecies in the entire Bible, as we'll look at and see, particularly next week. And as I said also, it's authenticated by Jesus, uh, class with Noah and Job, just an incredible man, uh, what a character. Hebrews 13:7 just simply speaks of those whose faith we should follow. It says, remember those who have rule over you have spoken unto you the word of God. Well, Daniel certainly is in that category. And it said, whose faith follow? Considering the end of their conversation. You know, this is the kind of character that we want to be following. The kind of people, you know, if there was Twitter back in those days, then this is the the kind of person you'd follow. Uh, Daniel was a man that, just a great example of an obedient life before God. Let's just jump in and have a look at some of the, the details. We're just going to pick on some of the highlights as we go through here. But in the, the opening verse, we read, In the third year, now we've highlighted that already, it was the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. Now notice what Daniel says. Because this is Daniel's record. He says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. This wasn't a haphazard event. Daniel is saying, just as God had prophesied through Jeremiah, in his word, Isaiah had foretold these prophecies, going back for a couple of hundred years of history now. Daniel is saying, just as God has said, God is now doing. The Lord gave. You know, do we have that confidence and faith? As we look at the events in the world, do we see that the Lord is doing things? That God is working his purpose out? But the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God which he carried to the land of Shinar. That also is a fulfillment of prophecy that these vessels were carried away to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure of the house of his God. You see, Daniel sees this as a literally fulfilled prophecy. And we just need to stress that whenever in scripture we have a fulfilled prophecy, we see that it's fulfilled literally. 
None of this allegorical nonsense that so much of the church wants to, to go and, and uh, adopt and believe. Not the case at all. See, Daniel, by today's standards, was a fundamentalist. He just took the word as it was, God's word. So, Nebuchadnezzar, this king, these are the kings of the Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar was Nebuchadnezzar's king, and he dies just at this point of this transition now as Jerusalem is captured. And so Nebuchadnezzar, the first actual year of his reign was 605 BC. Uh, he actually became king the previous year, but the way that the Babylonians count their, their king, years for kings, the year of ascension wasn't classed as the first year of the reign. The first full year would be. So that's why 605 we've seen uh, charts and things. We'll, you'll find Nebuchadnezzar is uh, becoming king that year. Well, we find then another one of, uh, one of Nebuchadnezzar's sons uh, becomes king after him. And then finally, we get down to Belshazzar. Um, this is uh, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel really these are the two kings uh, in the the kingdom that Daniel is going to be most interested in as we go through and we find that the king spoke to Ashpenaz and there's records on uh, clay tablets and so on of this individual the master of his eunuchs that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed of the princes children whom was no blemish but well favoured and skilful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, um, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. So, just as Jared said, their intention was to indoctrinate these young men. But these weren't foolish people. These weren't just some mystics. These were people who were the best. These were people who were academically brilliant as well. Now, I want you just to kind of get into the scene as it was here, as it was uh, as it occurred. And just think what it would have been like in Babylon in 606 BC for this young man, Daniel, and his friends that are taken away captive. I mean, the Babylon, we read about it being um, the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the ancient wonders of the world, and so on. You know, the world's, we have this kind of phrase, the bright lights of the city, and people go often to the cities to get that kind of buzz and that high. You know, there's actually a kind of a biblical basis for that in a sense that we are all looking for the bright lights of the city, but the city is the new Jerusalem. That's the one we want to be looking for. But Daniel here taking away to this city is just a 14 to 16 year old. And his friends, they leave Jerusalem, they travel for weeks across this desert terrain. Suddenly they see a city in the distance. As they get closer, the scale becomes clear. With some 15 miles square, this city would have been at its heyday. Walls that were 330 foot high and 80 foot thick. Wide enough for the Babylonians to have chariot races around the walls six abreast. And there were 250 towers around the walls. 80 foot brass gates. Imagine as Daniel is coming up to this. Seeing the, the sun reflecting off of these gates. It's shining for miles around. And again the infamous hanging gardens. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. With the Euphrates River running through the city, Babylon had orchards and vineyards inside the city, as well as grazing for the herds, pine trees, and all kinds of foliage in the middle of a desert. It was completely self-sustaining, so that in the event of a siege, they could simply shut the gates and carry on life as normal. There were over 200 open altars throughout the city, 153 different temples, including one that had an eight-mile perimeter, another had, another had a perimeter of three miles. One table from the temple of Merodach was 40 foot long, 6 foot wide, made from pure gold. The city was about 225 um, square miles inside, which is about 4 to 5 times the size of London today. And this place was huge, even by today's standards. And Daniel is taken to this incredible place. How easy would it have been for Daniel just to... Forget about his heritage, his upbringing, his past. Again, there was really nobody there that knew him. It didn't matter. Nobody was going to be saying, oh, you're, you're a Jew, you should do this or you should do that. The whole idea was that you blend in now. You know, it's a little bit like children today going off to university. Suddenly all the parental control, all the barriers, all the safeguards are suddenly removed. And it's like, well, what would you like? Have anything. And Daniel was suddenly thrust into this environment. 
We're told that the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meats and of the wine which he drank. So nourishing him three years. So we see a three-year development program for these young men now. And not just from Jerusalem, from Israel, but from other nations that have been uh, uh, conquered by Babylon. At the end of that time, they're going to stand before the king. And we're told, now among the children of Judah, we have Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These individuals. So the three-year training program for Daniel and his friends. And we're told unto whom the prince of the units gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to uh, Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. Um, this is really interesting because the whole intention here is to make them forget their own God. You see, each of their names reflected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The names they're being given were to reflect the gods of Babylon. It's all about forget your past. Don't worry about the things you've been told. You're in Babylon now, baby. This is where it matters. It's interesting, you know, look at these new names. Daniel, again, Balthasar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Meshach, or Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. What's interesting, and, and uh, Bill Cooper actually brings this out in his book, that in the book of Daniel, all of these names are spelt wrong intentionally. It's as if Daniel, as he's recording these names that were given, was actually defacing them a little bit. Because Daniel's actual name in Babylon was Belshazzar. And what we have in there is this little T-E that's been put in there. And it, rather than becoming then a reference to the god, the Bel, uh, god Bel that they worshipped in Babylon, it suddenly becomes gobbledygook. It doesn't mean anything. And it's interesting that Daniel seems to do this because we found inscriptions on the ancient monuments of these names spelt the way the Babylonians would have spelt them. And Daniel records them. It's almost like he kind of scribbles through a bit so it doesn't make sense. Abednego, it should be Abednebo. Nebo, one of the Babylonian gods. But a letter's changed. It's just as if Daniel, according to what he's told in Exodus, wouldn't even mention the name of a false god. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Hananiah, beloved of the Lord, Mishael, who is as God, and Azariah, the Lord is my help. Now, just promise me one thing. When you talk to people about these individuals, don't call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they are the Babylonian names they were given. Refer to them by the names that glorify God, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were their real names. They were the names that gave God the glory. But the names they were given would have meant, may Bel protect you. It's very much God save the king type thing. But the God that they're referring to here is, may Bel protect you. Shadrach, the name in the Babylonian would have been, illuminated by Ra. Meshach would have been, who is like unto Aku, another of their gods. And Abed, Nigo, would have been the servant of Nebo, N-E-B-O, is what it should be. Uh, a shining fire is the idea here. So all of those names, again, just trying to pull them away from their heritage, the things they know. It's interesting how much the world tries to do that today. Revelation 2.17, we're told, To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving him that receives it you know we are going to be renamed but that name is going to be given to us by God that we may be conformed into his likeness you see what was happening was that these new names were being given to these Jewish boys to try and conform them into the likeness of the gods that they worshipped in Babylon well Jesus is going to give us a new name that we be conformed to his likeness also now again there's a clay prism found uh, it's now in the Istanbul Museum and it's got mention of all of these names. I'll let you uh, look at the slide, the details later if you want to. Uh, but just confirming the historicity of these things. So we get to <coughs> chapter 2. Um, oh, actually, just, let me just mention that point. It's worth mentioning. Um, <laughs> Daniel uses his Hebrew name in this book 75 times. Interesting, isn't it? And the only time he uses his Babylonian name... It's misspelled anyway. Just an interesting aside. Daniel never loses sight of where he came from and his own God. So we get into chapter 2, a, position, a chapter we're familiar with, of course. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. 
just a little bit of the chronology here to help you understand how this all works. 606, we've already said, was that year that Jehoiakim is uh, put under siege and Daniel's taken captive. That's the first siege of Jerusalem, and that's when Nebuchadnezzar comes to the throne, his ascension year. It's Daniel's first year, therefore, in training as well. Okay, then we get to the next year, 605, because before Christ, we're counting down, of course, 605 BC. We find it's Nebuchadnezzar's first year as king, full year as king. It's Daniel's second year in training. Then we get to 604 BC, and Nebuchadnezzar's second year as king, and Daniel's third year in training. So as we start chapter 2, we're told, and in the second year of his reign... Now, why is that interesting? Well, the reason it's important to understand is because what we're going to see is all the wise men of Babylon are called to come and try and interpret his dream. Daniel's not called. Why? Because he was still in training. He hadn't finished his training program at that point. Very clearly from the dates, you can see Daniel still not completed the training. In fact, Daniel is kind of somewhat surprised when Ariok comes and says, all of the wise men are going to be killed. And he says, well, what's all this about? And then they explain the situation. So that's why these details in scripture, when you dig into it, it's so important. Now, what we find is that Nebuchadnezzar dreams this dream. Now he says, I can't remember my dream. Or at least if he can remember it, he seems to be playing a little bit of a game. Because he says, he calls these, and we're told actually in the verse 2, the king commanded the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans. So these individuals that he calls now, these various wise elect people that should be able to interpret Now, you'll notice we have this phrase, the magicians. Okay, You also find the wise men. It's the same group of people. You and I would refer to them as the magi. Now, what happens here is that the Chaldeans effectively offer to go first. What we see is that the Chaldeans say, King, let us explain your dream. Well, what's interesting is that the magi were the priestly order of the Medes. Now, the Medes, this has gone back for centuries Their order was hereditary, and they were renowned for astronomy, but also fell, unfortunately, into astrology as well. And they were recognized as being dream interpreters. But the Chaldeans were of Babylonian descent. These were opposing teams, if you like. Uh, They were very much uh, at each other and wanted to try and uh, usurp each other's credibility and so on. So the Chaldeans, as this dream is put forward, want to jump in straight away and offer the explanation. So the king asked for the, uh, the, the interpretation. And, of course, the Chaldeans want to upstage the Magi. But then the king explains that he can't remember the dream, or at least he wants to test them. And now the Chaldeans wish they'd let the Magi go first at this point. Because the king says, the thing has gone for me, I, I can't remember the dream. Or some commentators think what the king is saying is, I've said that I want you to tell me the thing, the command is gone, you tell me. Well... What happens is that none can interpret the dream. They can't remember a dream that the king is not prepared to tell them. So the king decrees that all should be killed. Daniel, of course, hears of this. He speaks to Ariok. He petitioned the king. It's very interesting, actually, that Ariok goes and says, I've found a man. <laughs> As if Ariok had done anything about it at all. Daniel had gone and approached Ariok. Because Ariok was the one that had been commissioned to kill all these wise men. But it's interesting that Daniel, when he hears this news says to Ariok, don't worry, there's a God in heaven that can answer this dream. And it's quite a humorous moment if you actually look at the the details. Daniel then goes home that night to his buddies and says, "Uh, guys, have you heard what's going on? And Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael would have been, no, what's happening? Well, we're all going to be killed. (laughs) They're going, great, okay. He says, yeah, the king's had a dream and he can't remember it and we've got to try and interpret the dream. So I said that we're going to do it. And you can imagine his three friends looking at Daniel and saying, you did what? (laughs) Thanks, Daniel. But you see, they put God's name on the line here, God's reputation. And so Daniel repeatedly, we see it through chapter 2, and if you go through and read it, you'll see that Daniel keeps referring to the fact that it's not just him, that we have done this. This is Daniel and his friends. They go, they seek the Lord in prayer, and then the Lord reveals to them the response. But Daniel, interestingly, asked for the Magi to be spared. Now, not the Chaldeans, not the others, but specifically asked for the Magi to be spared, the magicians, as it's referred to in the text, this Persian priestly tribe. And subsequently, Daniel is appointed as Rab Mag, and we find that reference in Jeremiah 39.3, but also in Daniel chapter 4, that he's the chief of the Magi. 
Now, this is an incredible honor in a sense and privilege because it was a hereditary priesthood. Nobody from the outside should have been given this position. But Daniel is granted the position to be head of this very uh, august group of... uh, um, well, they're far more than just politicians. They were people that were respected. They were priests and so on. They had a number of different roles. And one of the principal roles was to appoint and advise kings. Now, that's what we see them doing in the book of Esther. The, the magi there are called to advise the king as to what he should do with the situation uh, that he finds himself in there with Queen Vashti and so on. Well, it seems that Daniel... Is uh, entrusted this elite group with one of the most treasured secrets of all time. Now clearly you see God working through all of this. But Daniel becomes head of this group and clearly gives them this very important secret. And that is simply that God would become incarnate. God would be born as a man, as a human. He would become the king of Israel. And this secret is given to these magi who wait for around 500 years. And this is passed down. And they wait up until 2 BC when they look up and they see a new star. As a result of this, they begin their journey to the Roman-occupied Jerusalem. These are Persian kingmakers in a sense. But they're searching for the one that they were to anoint as king. The one who has been born king of the Jews. Now interestingly... These horse riding, they didn't ride on camels, kingmakers, with an entourage of somewhere around about a thousand or more, arrive in Jerusalem. What impact do you think that would have had? Well, we're told in Matthew chapter 2 verse 3 that all Jerusalem was troubled. No doubt, because this wasn't Roman uh, people, these are people from another rival power group, from the Persian Empire. Arriving, a thousand or so more arriving with these magi and all their support uh, personnel, their military support and everything else. Arriving to anoint the next king of Israel. And none would have been more concerned than the current king who was an Idumean. He'd simply been appointed by Rome to rule Judea. He wasn't legitimately the right king to rule over the nation of Israel. He was purely a Roman appointee. And so when the magi arrive, they ask, where is he who has been born king? There's a real slap in the face for Herod. Because he hadn't been born king of the Jews or born to be king of the Jews. Interestingly, some of the secular artwork actually has this, they, they've understood it as much as the church has missed it up. And we get this uh, Giovanni, this picture called the Journey of the Magi. You notice there are a number of them and they're all riding on horses. The Persians love their horses, they still do to this day. Another picture here, this is uh, the Adoration of the Magi by Botticelli. Again, the Persians on their horses going to find this new king and of course we have our own version of that today that you can get from Woolworths or not anymore because Woolworths is uh, no longer in business but we have our three kings bearing their gifts and they arrive on camels and they go to the stable and all of those things of course from scripture are wrong they weren't three they weren't kings they didn't go to the stable we'll look at more of that maybe when we get to Christmas time but we have made such a mess of these things because of tradition currently there's a, a tomb a shrine in Germany um, of these supposedly three kings they found some uh, archaeological expedi- uh, expedition they found three skulls together <laughs> who else could they be so uh, as a result of that they've now got this l- wonderful ornately decorated gold tomb uh, when we get to Christmas we'll have a look at that uh, together and go through but you see how Daniel had been kind of behind a lot of this in the becoming chief of the Magi at this point the dream then very familiar of course Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar was this head of gold. Falling on from him was going to be this chest and arms of silver, then the brass uh, legs and thigh, uh, belly rather than thighs uh, being of iron, then finally the feet and toes iron and clay. Uh, and then this stone cut without hands is going to smite the image on the feet and cause this whole thing to crumble and then would rise and consume the whole world. Uh, and of course we see reference to Jesus in that. Now, as it's been fulfilled through history, Babylon, of course, was that first empire. Daniel explains that this is what the image means to Nebuchadnezzar. Followed by Persia, followed by Greece, followed by Rome, but seemingly in two phases. The Persian Empire finally conquered the Babylonian Empire. That was then taken by the Greek Empire. And then the Greek Empire divides. 
into these four sections. We'll look at that in a bit more in detail next time. And then we end up with the Roman Empire. This empire that just smashed everything in its path. <clears throat> the real key is the final portion of this uh, chapter. Read, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and shall stand forever. So this is really the message. This is the kingdom from heaven. Spoken of in Matthew's gospel 32 times. We read of the kingdom of heaven. But it's the kingdom from heaven. That's the implication. That's what it means. This kingdom that is coming down from heaven. There's going to be a kingdom, a physical kingdom on this earth. Earthly. Ruling over the house of Israel and the whole world. That in itself is a subset of the kingdom of God. Be careful. We see these phrases in scripture and sometimes we get... Um, a little bit uh, blasé and we tend to merge them we think the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of God is one of the same isn't it no it's not very different in the context that it's given to us and so this is the first message that Nebuchadnezzar is given this message that's really challenging him saying you've got to understand King Neb that God is the one who appoints God is the one who is the king of kings now Initially, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it. He starts to try and offer Daniel his worship and praise and everything else. And, of course, appoints Daniel to a very high position in his government. And it's like, no, you're missing the point. It's not that just God can tell dreams. Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar seems very impressed by that. But he's missed the point that God is the one that's in charge. Chapter 3. Familiar, of course, because of this image that's set up. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. His height was three score cubits and the breadth... There of six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. <clears throat> now, interesting, because we've got the sixes here, again, six cubits, um, <clears throat> the breadth of and uh, so on, and the height, uh, three score, uh, so 60 cubits high. So in terms of actual height, it's all made of gold, by the way, six times 60 cubits, or roughly nine foot by 90 foot. And we have this image. Now, some people have questioned that it's not the right kind of proportions for a statue and so on. And, but they've already found in Dura, just as this place uh, says in Daniel, the base of this, uh, uh, where this, they believe the statue was actually set up. And it would have been seen from miles around. Now, this is uh, just over half the height of Nelson's column. Uh, it would have been very, very impressive. And again, shining in the sun. Um, you see, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here, clearly based upon the dream he's had with this image that was going to rule forever, he was, of course, in the image just the head of gold. Now he's made the whole statue of gold. It's almost a declaration. You know, people have been saying, oh, king, live forever. And he thought, yeah, that's a good idea. I think I will. So he makes his statue and he kind of loves all his adoration. Well, <clears throat> what's happened just before this, interestingly, there'd been a revolt. And... As a result of this, Nebuchadnezzar now brings people from all over his realm to reaffirm their allegiance to him. Now we actually have a reference to this in Jeremiah 51, 59. We find that even King Zedekiah makes a special visit to Babylon at this time. And seemingly it's for this purpose. So Nebuchadnezzar is getting everybody together. In the plane here, and there's, there's some estimates we're looking could be um, over 300,000 people ended up turning up. And, of course, they're told that what's going to happen here is that as the trumpet blasts, you all bow down and you worship. And you, you bow, give obedience to this image. <clears throat> and, of course, as they do that, these three Jewish boys choose not to. They say, no, we're not going to bow to an image. We're not going to bow to an idol. And so, as a result of this, we find that Nebuchadnezzar gets very, very cross through the whole thing. And <clears throat> we read... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered not, as this is the king challenges them, and says, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. What they're actually saying is, we don't even have to give you an answer to this question. You know, and we're not concerned about this. He says, If it so be our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. What faith? It just reminds us, doesn't it, of Job thirteen fifteen. Yet though he slay me, will I trust him? That's what they're saying. You know, okay, we're not going to bow. doesn't matter what happens to us. We're going to serve God. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely furious. He commands that the 
furnace, which again they found on the plain of Jura, be heated up seven times the, the heat. The guards that open it, because typically they've dropped them in from the top, the guards that open it are just overcome by the heat. They die. But these individuals are put in there. And then they look and they see these three men. Not just three. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who looks first of all. And he sees four men walking around, loosed. And they notice that the third one, he says, in fact, I'm just reading from chapter 3, verse 25. He also said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. That's in the, 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 um, the Aramaic, which is what we're dealing with here. It's not uh, suggesting an angelic being here. This is the Son of God. This is a pre-incarnate version or vision of Jesus Christ. So these three Hebrew men, in the midst of the fire, are there. And Jesus is there in their midst. You know, the only thing that gets burnt up through that time of affliction for them, being put into that furnace, was the things that bound them. I love that. When we go through trials, what, what is it that gets burnt up? The things that bind us. I think that's just so powerful because the Lord so often allows us to go through trials. But it's so simply that it's the things that were actually binding us, the things that were stopping us moving forward, maybe in our relationship with the Lord. As they, they come out, because Nebuchadnezzar calls them out, just totally blown away by all of this. There's not even the smell of smoke on them. God has totally protected these individuals that trusted him. In World War II, the British and Allied forces got pushed back by the German army to the beaches of Dunkirk in France, something many of you will be familiar with. And they were trapped, of course, by the English Channel on one side and the approaching German army on the other. And they simply sent back a three-word message, which simply was, but if not... Immediately it was recognised as being a quote from the book of Daniel and was understood to mean that the trapped British forces would wait to be saved. But if not, they would die fighting and stand up for their cause. This then led to the famous Dunkirk evacuations where hundreds of military, merchant and private fishing boats all set sail across the channel, many from Portsmouth, and dramatically rescued in the region of 350,000 British and Allied soldiers. Interestingly, it's been said that if such a message would be sent today, and the soldiers would perish, and no one knows what the Bible says anymore. <laughs> it's quite interesting. But if not, you know, is that the way we live our lives? You know, Lord, I trust you. I believe that you're going to do this. But if not, it won't shake my confidence in you. <clears throat> Where's Daniel through all of this? Have you ever wondered? Have you asked the question to yourself? Why wasn't Daniel in the furnace? Why wasn't he even in this scene? Well, there's some options. Did he yield to the king's challenge? No, very unlikely. Was Daniel exempted from this? No, I doubt it. Had he been removed from the situation? Probably on an errand for the king. Most likely, yes. He was away on some business for the king. In fact, there are those that suggest that all of this had been a big setup by the Chaldeans, those that had tried to trap Daniel's three friends. And they waited till Daniel was away to say to the king, why don't you set up an image and we could do this and we could do this and we could do this. So it may have all been a big setup with the intention of trying to catch Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael. But of course, there's a lovely prophetic element to this, that we have these three Jews that are put through this furnace, very much like the tribulation, heated seven times hotter. But Daniel very much symbolic of the church, referred to as God's beloved, taken out of the way. And again, I'll let you uh, run with that if you want to, but to me that seems another lovely picture of the rapture of the church, taken out of the way before the judgment comes on this world and so on. And in fact, if you look at Daniel 3 and compare it to Revelation 13, you find this image of this man set up just to be worshipped. Direct parallel, of course, between Nebuchadnezzar and Antichrist. Even the whole idea of Babylon and Nimrod, all these things come back. This idea of one world religion. In Revelation, of course, we have the idea of the mark of the beast and so on that comes out. And uh, against that, we have the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the protection of the Holy Spirit. Um, we find 144,000 Jews supernaturally sealed through that time. And then the fiery furnace. Again, a furnace speaks of tribulation. The time in Egypt was spoken of as that as well. And then men are destroyed by the flames. So there's a lot of parallels we can see between these uh, two chapters. I'll let you take that away for further study. 
Okay, we're not going to, we're going to just do a little bit of chapter four. In fact, we'll just take chapter four and then we'll leave the other two chapters of the history till next time. So, chapter four, just an interesting chapter in itself. At the end of 12 months, this is Nebuchadnezzar, he walks around the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. Now, 12 months prior to this, he'd had another dream. And it's interesting because chapter four is a chapter that you have in your Bibles that's written by a Gentile king. Because chapter four is written by Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar starts by saying about the fact that he had this dream. And then he recounts what took place. It's interesting that he says that, first of all, he asked other people. They couldn't interpret it. Why didn't he ask Daniel straight away? Because I think he knew that this might reveal something he didn't want to hear. You know, sometimes we'll ask people questions. We'll ask people for advice if we know they're not going to give us the advice that really we need. And this is exactly what he tries to do. Finally, he does ask Daniel, and he makes the comment... That, that Daniel is not troubled. And it's funny because as soon as Daniel hears the, the dream, Daniel's troubled. Now that must make the king a little bit apprehensive because Daniel, who doesn't get troubled by anything, suddenly is troubled. And Nebuchadnezzar realizes this is about him. And it's really to do with the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, in the second chapter, the lesson there for Nebuchadnezzar was to learn that it's God who appoints kings. In the, second, sorry, in the third chapter, with the whole image thing, again, the lesson there is that it's God who appoints kings. What we find is that Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed by these miracles, by these signs and wonders. Sound familiar? But he's not realized that it's God who's in control of it. He's not really connected the dots. It's not, he's not realized that he's only where he is because of God. And then so finally we get to this third lesson now. And this is where God reveals to him that God is God and he's only where he is because of God and so picking up verse 30 the king spoke and said is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by uh, the might of my power and for the honour of my majesty he's kind of walking around one evening printing himself what a good job I've done I'm a good king and while the word was in the king's mouth there fell a voice from heaven saying O king Nebuchadnezzar to thee it is spoken the kingdom is departed from thee and they should drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and shall make thee to eat grass as oxen. Seven times. Many commentators feel that's referring to seven years for a number of reasons. Um, some others would suggest it's three and a half years either way. And they shall pass over thee until thou know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and giving it to whomsoever he will. You see, the purpose of this lesson is that Nebuchadnezzar would come to that place of realizing that God rules. In the kingdoms of men. And he gives it to whomsoever he wills. Now, we find that as a result of this, we've just seen this, that a year after the dream, this then happens. And then for somewhere up to either three and a half or seven years, I'll let you choose as scholars on both sides of that one. Um, he's stripped with this mental illness. Eventually, he recovers and publishes the testament we have in chapter four for the world. Really, the lesson here is all about pride. God clearly hates pride. Why? Because that was what led to Satan's fall. We read about that, of course, in Timothy. But in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, we find echo. And right from all the way through, we've been going through this year, we just keep coming back to this theme of the pride of Satan and the way that he tries to use other people by getting them to be puffed up with pride. That sense of, all this is for me. Remember the situation with Haman. Who would the king like to honor more than me? Well, that just speaks of the way Satan is. There are those that question this whole illness thing. Could it really happen? Because we read of uh, Nebuchadnezzar growing hair and eating grass like an ox and so on. Well, there is actually a, a condition, uh, lycanthropy. Um, but uh, probably more accurate um, assessment of what we've got going on is another condition called boanthropy, where he becomes literally like an ox. There was a condition... In fact, there's a number of uh, historical references, but in 1946, uh, there was a chap just after the war who was hospitalized for five years with a condition that exactly matches that of Nebuchadnezzar. But other historical references refer to this, and others that had similar situations. There's also what's been referred to as the prayer of Nabonidus, but many believe because the spelling, some of the words are missing, some of the letters are missing, this may well be the prayer of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and so there's debate among scholars. But the wording of this, and I'll leave this in the notes, seems to be another confession by Nebuchadnezzar of what God allowed him to go through, that he would come to that place of acknowledging and glorifying God. <clears throat> well, again, we see 
that and the natural, there's also a prophetic element to this as well. Because in chapter 4, we find this vision that he's got is of this tree that's cut down to the stump and it is bound with bronze and iron. Now, Daniel doesn't give us any interpretation of that. But just something for you to consider as we close is that the nation of Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon, was effectively cut down to a stump. It was bound then by the bronze and the iron. Remember the successive empires? The Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the empires that have really shaped the world. The Greek Empire shaped the academia of the world with its universities and its philosophy and its thinking. The Roman Empire, so much has, has been changed in this world because of the Roman Empire. And Babylon, with all its mysticism and all its ideas and, and uh, the, the religions of Babylon, have been bound by the Greek and the Roman empires, by that kind of uh, ideologies. But are we living in a time now where that tree will start to sprout again? And we're getting back to that kind of Babylonianism, where people are getting more into mystical ideas. Well, certainly if we look at the church, that's happening. But even if you look beyond the world, people are going beyond just science now and incorporating all sorts of mystical ideas in their understanding of things. This kind of interest in the paranormal and and spiritual things. So it may well be that chapter 4, if you look deeply, there's another level than just what took place with Nebuchadnezzar. It could be speaking directly in the times that we live in. We will leave it for there this morning and we'll pick up and we'll do chapter 5 and 6 next week. uh, And then we'll run through to the, the remainder of the book. Let's just bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for these incredible truths. But Lord, thank you for the lessons and the character example we have with people like Daniel, with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Thank you, Lord, that through the midst of the furnace, the only things that get burnt up are the things that bind us. So, Lord, may we not be fearful, but may we trust you in all things. Lord, may we purpose in our hearts not to be defiled. Oh, Lord, I ask this for all of us here this morning, that we would be pleasing to you and that you could use us in the days in which we live. Lord, as so many of these things seem to be repeating themselves now. Father, use us, we pray. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit this morning. And Father, let us be ambassadors for our King, Lord, in the foreign realm in which you've placed us. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.